Hello, my dear friends. So glad that you are listening in today. As I look around our nation of utter foolishness, the thought occurs to me that had the founding fathers had the clairvoyance to have seen into the future and seen the day and times in which we live, they probably would have concluded that British rule was not so bad after all. I only bring that up because one of the things that we are finding is the desire to erase or reinterpret history, and that's a dangerous thing to do. If we can't understand history from a proper perspective, then we lose the benefit of both the good lessons that we learn from history, but also the negative things we learn from history and how to avoid those in the future. And as we continue in our study of the history of Christianity, we're seeing both of those things. Uh, at the beginning of this study, we saw a lot of positive things, a lot of things that we could point to that, boy, it'd be great, it'd be great if we could get back to some of those days. Not, not, every, not every bit of it, but there were definitely a lot of those. As we have now turned the page to the time of the imperial church, now moving into a time where while there are positive lessons, there's probably more things that we need to try to avoid or even move past. So many of these things that we're learning about, the echoes of those historical events are still affecting us today. And I've brought that up many, many times. So I hope that you'll continue to enjoy being students of history. One of the things that is most valuable about it is learning the background from which we come and also the way forward to move beyond some of the mistakes of the past, as well as maybe look into some of the good things we could bring back in the time in which we live. So we're going to start with this lesson today. This is part 15. The title of this lesson is The Schismatic Reaction. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment, but this is one of many divisions in the church, outright, actual outright splits that continue to become more and more a part of church life as the church moves forward. So let's jump in here to look at the topic of the schismatic reaction. And what we're going to be talking today about is Donatism. You may be wondering, what is Donatism? Probably not a lot of you have studied this. That's okay. There's no real reason that you should have. The Donatist controversy was a church split, and the division occurred over the question of the lapsed and how they should be restored. So what do we mean by lapsed? Well, these were the ones that during the periods of persecution that had come before the establishment of the Christian church as definitely sanctioned by the Roman government and then ultimately the official religion of Rome, there, these persecutions had taken quite a toll on people in the church. And while we celebrate those who overcame the persecution, and we certainly remember with great respect those who died for their faith, there were also many who did not live up to the task. They yielded in their faith, but they sought to be restored. Now, there were those who, who left Christianity completely behind. They turned their back on it at this time when they were being persecuted, and they never came back. But there were a lot also that did want to come back, and they desired to have uh, 
be able to renew their relationship with the church. And there was a quite a bit of debate about how to do that. Now, this isn't the first time this happened. We know there are persecutions that happened from the time the church was established up until the fourth century. And there were several of them, Jewish persecutions at the beginning, but then ultimately it was the persecution of the Roman government. And during each one of those, there were those, some sometimes more than others, but there were those who left. And there was always a question about what's the proper, proper process of bringing them back. So that's what this uh, Donatist controversy was really all about. Those who suffered imprisonment or torture during the persecution became known as confessors. This was a special group of people within the church. They went through the persecution and they overcame it. Remember that the persecutions that preceded the time of Constantine or even during his time but before he had control, they tended to be more... They were definitely not pleasant. They were There was torture, but they tended to be more along the lines of trying to force somebody to abandon their faith more than it was, let me just kill you. People did die, but there were more now than maybe some of the other times of people that did go through the persecution and lived through it, And but they were tortured. They were imprisoned. They had to go through some bad stuff, and they never turned away from their faith. So they were given very special status in the church, and they became known as confessors. Now, after the time of Constantine, these confessors desired greater rigor than the church was applying in permitting the lapse to return. Some of the times before this, there, there was still this group called the confessors, but they tended to be a little bit more lax. They wanted to kind of give the benefit of the doubt to people. And there was actually controversy before this because of that fact. They, they thought the church was being too harsh. But that time is not now. This group is different. This group of confessors feel like the church is being too easy on those who lapse. They want it to be tough. They don't want it to be easy to come back. They want them to have to pay some kind of a price that's steep. We can understand that if you are one of the ones who paid the price and you stood up to the test, you probably don't have real great feelings about those who decided not to. And yet here they are, they can just come right back on in and no problem at all. And this is one of those times that hindsight in our view makes it easy for us to say what we would do. We need to just let them come on back in. God forgives them. That's easy for us to say. It's, it's more difficult when you're the one who went through the tough part and you had to pay that price. And now you're side by side with those who maybe not only didn't pay the price, but maybe they were even one of the ones who turned on you. Maybe they mentioned your name, and here that person is, or you maybe suspect that they did, and you're side by side with them, brother to brother, sister to sister. It may be a little bit more difficult. So again, we get very judgmental when we look back on figures in history, but we need to understand if we were walking in their shoes, we would probably do a lot of the same things they did. If people would apply that sensibly and realize that if you lived in a different time, you would not think about things the same way that you do today, you probably would go right along with the way people thought about things back then. If we would just remember that, we might be able to have a little bit more sense about some of the things that we're trying to do right now. Just a thought. This controversy really blew up over the position of the Bishop of Carthage. During this conflict, the very important bishopric of Carthage became vacant. This was the bishop in northern Africa. It was a very important part of the empire, 
and had a lot of influence. If you had that position, the the way you thought about things, the theological group that you went with, that group was going to have a lot more influence. It was important for people of diff- of these different factions to put somebody in that position that thought the same way that they did. That became a, a very important election, and the church elected a guy named Sicilian, but this election was not popular among those in the rigorous party, those that eventually became known as the Donatists. They didn't like Sicilian. He was more lax. He went along more with being on the side of the Roman Empire and the side of Constantine, and theologically, he didn't agree with this group. So they didn't want him. So what they decided to do was, well, we'll just elect our own guy. They elected this guy named Majorinus as a rival bishop. So you have two bishops in place. That was an issue. But Majorinus died shortly after being elected, and in his place, his party elected Donatus. That obviously is the name from which the name Donatism is derived, this leader. And he was very influential. He didn't die like Majorinus did shortly. He stayed around for quite a while. In fact, he was their leader for almost half a century. So a long period of time, Donatus was very influential. And he was the leader of this rigorous party that wanted to be more strict. Probably they would be considered to be more of the very conservative group. This led to a schism in the church. Schism, if you're not familiar with that word, that just means a split, a, a division of factions. And the way that happened was the rest of the church was disturbed by this, this schism in North Africa, this split. You've got two different groups and they got two rival bishops. That's not the way the church was meant to function. So the bishops of Rome and several other important cities declared that Sicilian was the true bishop of Carthage. If that didn't hold enough weight, they got Constantine on their side. Constantine followed the lead of these bishops. And this is, again, one of those times where Constantine interjects himself into the dealings of the church. He thought that he had every right to do that. And, I mean, he did have the ability to do it. I don't know if it was, if it was right. It probably wasn't. But he did it anyway. And he instructed his officers in North Africa to acknowledge only Sicilian. So you may be thinking, well, okay, that the emperor's putting his stamp of approval on this guy. That's, that's a tough thing to overcome, but does it really make a whole lot of difference? Well, it did because Constantine issued legislation in favor of Christianity. And one of the big things that he allowed was a tax exemption for the clergy. So you had to be sanctioned under the church and ultimately be the one that's recognized by the government in order to receive this tax exemption. Well, guess what? Those who supported Sicilian were the only ones who would receive these benefits. And the tax exemption was just one of those. So this was a big deal. Constantine kind of put his stamp of approval on it, and it made a very bitter rivalry even worse because now these people already weren't crazy about Constantine coming into the church. And now he's stood up against them, said that basically their leader is illegitimate, and he's not going to give them an important tax benefit, uh, among other things. So this definitely caused a split. It caused a, a big rivalry, and it didn't go away quickly. What were the causes of the Donatist schism? The main issues between the two sides were theological in nature. There are some other issues we'll look at in a moment, but there were some pretty big theological differences that they had. 
The Donatists claimed that one of the bishops who had consecrated Sicilian was a traitor. That means someone who had delivered scripture to the authorities during the persecution. One of the things that the, this persecution that preceded Constantine, one of the things they tried to do was to, to try to gather as many of the sacred texts as they could just to get them out of circulation, get rid of them. And one thing that some of these church leaders did that was actually good thinking on their part, they would go and they would get some of these texts that weren't great, like maybe some of the Gnostic texts that they kept around for reference, but they weren't things that they knew were inspired scripture or even very good instruction, and they would turn those in. And that was a good thought. Those people were okay. But there were some that did give scripture and some of the more sacred texts to the authorities during the persecution. And so the Donatists said one of these bishops, there were three bishops who consecrated Sicilian, and he said they said that one of those bishops was somebody that had done this, a traitor. And so for them, that made this invalid. Well, Sicilian and his supporters denied this claim. They said it wasn't even true, but they also made the point that even if it were true, it wouldn't matter because Sicilian's election would still be valid. The Donatists disagreed with that. They claimed that any ordination, any sacrament or consecration performed by an unworthy bishop was invalid. This is a pretty big deal, and where you fall on either side of this is a big deal. If it is invalid for someone, a human being, if they are in a position to be an official of the church and do an ordination, a consecration, give the sacraments, if your stance is that if that person is any way unworthy, then their act is not valid, then you would never really know if what you had received was valid because nobody knows a man's heart. Nobody knows a man's thoughts. And that was the argument that the group that supported Sicilian made, which was the church at large. Those leaders said, look, that, that really can't work because you would never know. All of our, your baptism may be invalid. If a guy baptized you and later on he fell, that you, your baptism is no good. All the times you came and, and were a part of communion, all of that is invalid. This was a big thing. This was a big deal. And where you fell on this was very important. Donatus said, no, if you are not worthy, if a leader's not worthy, then anything they did was invalid. And the larger church, again, just took that, they took the opposite view on that. Uh, they said that the validity of the sacraments and of other such acts could not be made to depend on the worthiness of the one administering them because of the very practical reason that you would then therefore never know for sure that what you had received was valid because you can't know the heart of a man. So it's the act. It's you coming and being a part of it that's important. It's not the person who gives it to you. The Donatists didn't agree with that. They said the worthiness of the man was what mattered. So this is a big theological difference. Now, if you look at this scripturally, what, what precedent is there for that? It's really hard to find anything. It's really hard to be able to say that a person would be invalidated because of something they had done or thought or whatever, that all of a sudden anything that they had ever done wasn't valid. I can't point to some particular scripture to say, well, this is where that came from. You might be able to find one if you do. That's great. I'd love to hear it. These were opposite views, and they they were theological, but they really weren't backed up that much by Scripture. 
but both both groups held to them strongly. Well, the Donatists took this so far that they required anyone joining them from the other side. If you left the, the church at large and you decided, hey, I want to join these Donatists. I, I like what they've said. I, I'm, I'm going to go on and join them. They would say, okay, you can come on in. But guess what? You're going to have to get rebaptized because your baptism is invalid. Anybody that's with that group, they're no good. They are unworthy. It doesn't matter what they may have done in the past. It doesn't even matter if they were among some of these people that had stood up to persecution. They're invalid because they don't believe the way we do. So we're not going to accept anything from them. You have to come to our side and be baptized by one of ours. Now, doesn't this sound like some of the stuff that we've got going on in churches now? I've known of churches that are this way. I've known of churches that they won't accept anything unless you come from their very church or maybe their denomination. I know of churches that would tell you you can't come in, for instance, and be a, and partake of communion if you are not part of their church or part of their denomination. These kind of things still exist today. They have their roots back in this time. And even before this, there were other times like this. But this one's pretty significant. It's one of the, the early big schisms. So in keeping with the opposing view, the, if you left the Donatist group and came to join the larger church, you didn't have to get rebaptized. They considered, uh, although they didn't agree with them, they considered them still to be Christians and valid, valid in their acts, and that they you didn't have to come and, and get something different from them that that you didn't get from the from the Donatists. It, it wasn't necessary. Both of these groups held to their beliefs, and they both acted on them. Well, not only were there theological factors, but there were also some other factors as well. The two parties soon separated along social and geographical lines. The theological differences remained, but they definitely tended to come from different groups, and those groups were divided along social and geographical lines. In Carthage and the surrounding area, the followers, followers of Sicilian were strong. It tended to be in this controversy that if you were a part of one of the large churches, especially in one of the major cities, you were going to go along with Sicilian and you were going to go along with the church, the larger church. But further west in the more agricultural areas of Numidia and Maritania, the Donatists were popular. If you look at it geographically, there are different regions but the breakdown really is between the urban people versus those that were more the agricultural and the rural areas. And then obviously because of that, that also broke down in social lines as well. The Donatists generally attracted those from the lower classes because they tended to be the ones that lived in these more agricultural areas. Uh, that group tended to be more independent from Rome, and they resented the influx of the rich and powerful to Christianity. They considered themselves to be the ones who had stood faithfully in the church for years. They were the ones who had made sure that the faith had passed on. They were the ones who, in a lot of ways, had to resist temptation to join in with some of these pagan groups. They had to go through persecutions that some of these very ones that are coming into the church now probably supported and maybe even participated in, and they did not like that group. They didn't feel part of it. They weren't necessarily, at least not at first, opponents of Rome and the Roman Empire, but they tended to be more independent from it, and they resented it in some ways. 
that led to lines being drawn in the Donatist conflict between social classes. So the, the ones that supported Sicilian, they were more the urban dwellers. They were going to be more in line with Rome, so they definitely would care what Constantine had to say. And when Constantine took a side, they were going to be on that side. So they were more a part of this upper class group, the ones that were among the rich and the powerful and the elite that had now come into Christianity and were exerting their influence on it quite a bit. Obviously, these Donatists resented that too. They didn't like the fact that all of a sudden these people just show up and now they're running things. You can understand, again, why these two groups were not able to get along. We're having the same issue today. People in our country that tend to live in large urban metropolitan areas, we don't need to get into politics and, and whatever, but they definitely probably think differently in general from those who live in more of a rural uh, areas, maybe even southern states. You can look at it that way. Geographical, class, however you want to say it, you see that there are differences and there are conflicting ways of thinking. It didn't just start here with this. This is an example of something that's happened all throughout history, and it still happens now. We see it in our churches, and we're seeing it in our country, and it was going on at this time. So let's talk about another group that came along as a part of this. This was a group called the Circumcilians. They came around the year AD 340. This group appeared among the Donatist group. They were mostly Numidian and Mauritanian Donatist peasants who resorted to violence. This was a group of people that were in those lower classes. They were in those regions that really supported the Donatist movement the most strongly. They were very fanatical. And what I mean in, in saying it that way is they, their fanaticism led them to actually want to physically oppose the group that they didn't agree with. Obviously, that goes completely away from anything that Christianity teaches. To stand up in violent acts against your brother, against your sister, how can you claim to be a Christian in good standing and feel that way? Well, for them, they, they took this hard line that made them or led them to say, well, that other group, because they don't believe the way I do, and because I'm, I think so strongly that what I'm saying is right, then they're not even my brother or sister. They're not part of this. There's something totally separate. And they left the church over this. They separated themselves and were actually willing to get into violent conflicts on this basis. Uh, unfortunately, we see this all through history where religious groups want to fight one another. And it's not necessarily always or maybe not even mostly religious people from different religions, it's people from within the same religion. And within Christianity, the, the religion that's supposed to be the, the religion of peace, of life, and of light, our founder, Jesus Christ, he came and he showed an example of how we treat our brothers and sisters. When he put others before him, he took care of the needs of the poor. And he knowing that he was going to soon face his death and knowing those men that were his most trusted followers, one was going to outright betray him and the rest of him, rest of them were not going to stand with him. He washed their feet. That example of our Lord and Savior was not held up with this group, but it's not held up with a lot of us in a lot of churches through the years. We all are guilty of this in which we allow ourselves because of theological differences to then hate our own brother and sister 
on the basis of that. Now, are there some things in our beliefs that are hills that we have to die on? Yes, I, I would agree with that. There are some things that I can't say, okay. That's why there, there are groups that are considered cult groups that would like to be embraced by larger Christianity, but it can't be done because their beliefs are so radically against what is orthodox and what is essential that we can't call them brothers and sisters. So there, there's definitely those times. But when it comes to things that we just have disagreements on theology, especially things that have been controversial for years and nobody really seems or, or no time in Christian history has there really been agreement on, to decide that that's what's going to let you isolate your brother or sister or even in this case decide that you're going to attack them, that's a pretty tough stance to take, and it's really not in keeping with what's right. So this is one of those lessons we can learn from history about how not to do things, and hopefully we can do better than that. These religious fanatics believed that to die in battle against perverters of the faith was equal to the death of the martyrs. They were really impressed with the martyrs. Uh, many of them met at the tombs of the martyrs. That was a practice that had gone on for years. They looked at themselves. They couldn't be martyred anymore because Christianity was accepted now. And there wasn't anybody to kill them. But if they went to battle for the faith, if they stood up and battled for their faith against those who were opposing the, the truths of Scripture, then they felt like they were equal to the martyrs. If they died doing that, they were equal to the martyrs. I have a feeling when they died and met God that they probably found out that wasn't actually correct. So for them, it wasn't a big deal to go into battle with the thought that they may die. They looked, that was a good thing. So this radical party became an important factor in the schism. Some Donatist leaders attempted to disassociate themselves from the Circumcilians, but they would take advantage of, the, of this group when they needed troops. So they didn't really practice what they preached either. They didn't, if it was convenient for them to have them around, they liked them. And if it wasn't, they tried to say, well, we don't want you around. Not a great stance to take, but that's what they did. The Donatists and Circumcilians continue to exist into the 7th century. So we're in the 4th century, and they were still around in the 7th century. So there are hundreds of years of Christian history. The schism existed, and these groups were in conflict. What conclusions can we draw from, from looking at this? Donatism was a response to the new conditions brought about by the conversion of Constantine. We've talked several times now about how different groups reacted to Constantine, and we've seen that some of the Christians, they embraced it. They embraced having the emperor on their side and being acceptable. Others, we talked about last week, they just left. They didn't, they didn't split from the church. They didn't try to create something new. They didn't even go back and preach and tell the other church how bad it, the church how bad it was they just left they went out to the desert and lived lives of solitude but now we have the donatists who simply broke with the church so they just split another thing that's important to know about this is that the serious theological questions they raised about the nature of the church and the validity of the sacraments would force other christians notably saint augustine to deal with these issues what has been brought forward now, the thinking that the Donatists introduced was going to be around now, and people in the church were going to have to pick which side they took with this and had to, and it forced them to think about whether their argument was valid or whether the argument of the group with uh, Sicilian was valid.
So we're going to run into this thinking again, definitely when we talk about St. Augustine. But we're going to talk about it even other times beyond that. Next week, when we jump back in with our lesson, we're going to look at another conflict within the church of theological nature. More and more now, as the church has become the imperial church, there is a necessity to, to iron out and to nail down what orthodox theology is. And as a result of that, there are some conflicts and there are some her, what come to be thought of as heretical thinking that had to be corrected. And then we start getting into these councils of church leadership in which they officially declare something to be orthodox theology. We're going to look at what where that stuff came from. A lot of people have the idea that they got in these councils and just wrote it all. Not correct. They came in there. Each one of these men came in with different opinions or different views. A lot of them agreed, but they would bring those thoughts. And these were things that had come from the church, not just from them. They weren't just a, a group of old men who decided what was going to be what. But they did have to decide which, which side are we going to take on some important issues. So we'll look in the, with that group fairly, the both the good and the bad from them. And I think you'll find that very interesting. Thanks again for joining me today. I hope that you have a great week. I hope that you stay safe. And I hope that you will continue to shine the light of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ into this lost and dying world. Remember that with all of the problems we see around us, how discouraging it can be, there is only one answer. And no answers are found in politics. No answers are found in removing names or statues. Whether or not those things need to happen, you can argue that. But even when, if they do happen, you won't find answers or peace there. The only peace, the only answer for this world, the only way to have unity is through faith in Jesus Christ. The relationship that we can have God through faith in him is what ultimately will bring us into unity with others. So I hope that you'll continue to shine the light of the gospel message in all that you say and do. Thanks for being a part of this again and look forward to talking to you next week.